This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, also artistic administrator and principal second violin, Merwin Sue, and our special guest today is Rachel Zeithamel, who is director of education for the TSO. Welcome, everybody. Delighted to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. Glad to have you along today. Now, we have a lot to talk about. The subject of the day is education, which we know is uh, very important for any arts organization. So we have a lot of different uh, things to talk about and a lot of different stories to tell. I thought it would be nice to begin with our own stories. I asked each of you to give me some music that uh, perhaps was, you know, seminal for you in, in, in opening your eyes to the world of classical music. And uh, I am going to actually put myself out there as the, the first example Um I have a couple of things that that came at different parts of my life. The first thing is I still remember very distinctly uh, playing the piano when I was seven years old and working in that John Shum Green book. And my favorite song was a piece called Bone Sweet Bone. Do you know Bone Sweet Bone? Are you familiar with it? I do not know Bone Sweet Bone. You don't know Bone Sweet Bone. Might we get a... It it could be played as a duet. But I thought about, you know, trying to to, uh, uh, tape myself playing it on the piano, but... If you go to YouTube, there are about 50 or 60 different examples of pianists of varying degrees of competence trying to play Bone Sweet Bone, which is really quite remarkable in and of itself. But it, it's simple. It just is Bone Sweet Bone, Bone Sweet Bone, Bone Sweet Bone, Sweet Bone, Bone Sweet Bone, Bone Sweet Bone, Bone Sweet Bone, Sweet Bone. And you can do it as a duet if you want to. So later on, we'll, we'll maybe we can do a little concert for the folks at home. So that, for me, for some weird reason, stands out in memory. And uh, then after that, when I was in high school, um, I had a humanities teacher who played a recording for our class, and I became really interested in opera. So I want to play a little bit of this for you now. Maybe it was the laugh that got me (laughs) when I first heard it. But, you know, just imagine a bunch of high school students sitting in the room listening to this recording and this singer named Caruso, you know, going by one name. And uh, it it really grabbed everybody's attention. I remember the class being held in rapt attention by this voice, whether it was, uh, you know, kind of a morbid fascination or whether they were really grabbed by the music. I don't know. But for me, it was the music. Of course, this is also around the time of that Rice Krispies commercial. Remember that? No more Rice Krispies. We have no more Rice Krispies. And then they all cry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when we got to the end, I thought, I know that. That's the Rice Krispies theme. And not too long after that, I remember hearing um, some music from Carmen and thinking, I know that. That's like the theme to the Bad News Bears. So I started making all these different connections between stuff I saw in the popular media and classical music. Here, here it is. Here's the part that uh, really got me. Oh, so 
recording, even though it was made like over a hundred years ago. That was a new release when you heard it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that voice uh, just standing it out does. as uh, such a remarkable example of singing. And I remember running running to the library after that and checking out recordings of tenors. I was into mm -hmm. tenors, and I kept finding all of these different recordings of tenors. Mm -hmm. I was like Franco Corelli and. Di Stefano and Richard Tucker and all and Mario De Monaco and all these. I'm like, why does nobody know these people? Because they're so good, mm -hmm. you know. But I was the naive one of the bunch. And then many years later, when I was singing, I I had the good fortune to sing this role of Pagliacci at the Teatro Colon in Buenos Aires, a house which was actually opened by Caruso. Mm -hmm. He sang Aida there back in 1908. You can go to YouTube now and find videos of his triumphant arrival in the harbor in Buenos Aires and making his way to the uh, theater. So that was, uh, that was quite a full circle experience for me. So that's my story, right? <laughs> Waste a little time with that. It's a good story. It, we were talking off air about the uh, modern re-recording of the Caruso um, yeah. dream recital, I think they called it. And um, it, it's, it's important to have that because when you, when you listen to these very old recordings, uh, that are a century old, and you start to think about what technology must have been like at that time to capture something like that. Uh, and then you play the um, the old Caruso voice with a modern orchestra. It takes away some of the, the inhibitions that um, we might have when listening to an old recording. Um, and you realize what a great actor he was and how yeah. that, that sobbing at the end is really just just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a caricature. I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. that has been turned into a caricature by m many other people, but uh, certainly not in the case of Caruso. And the fact that that was able to speak to young people, you know, I think it has mm -hmm. a powerful message mm -hmm. to it as far as education goes. Um, well, Zach, let, let's hear your examples. You uh, offered up a couple of things. The first one was uh, Prokofiev, Romeo, and Juliet, mm -hmm. and the scene at uh, Juliet's tomb, Romeo mm -hmm. at Juliet's uh, grave. Yeah. This is a recording with uh, Chicago Symphony under Ricardo Muti. I just want to bring it up here. A again, music that does not sound too happy. <laughs> no, but it was so powerful to me. I was a little kid when I went to see the Toledo Symphony for the first time. And this is the music that ended the concert. And I just remember spending the whole time in awe that I was seeing a live orchestra because I'd always wanted to go with my parents. They finally took me. And this music was new to me at that concert. And I was just hypnotized by it. So by the time we get to the end of Romeo and Juliet, I just couldn't, I couldn't let it out of my mind. Yeah. And there's a piccolo at the end of this that... Um, Let's see if I can fast forward this. That to it, the end, it it just takes us out, and it, it all of it disappears into um, this very high, perfect piccolo. And I remember on the way out to the car, and all the way home, and for the rest of the weekend, I just kept thinking about this eerie and stirring music. And um, it, you know, you talk about moments that change your life, and I think that that really was one for me. Yeah, here's the ending of it, and the piccolo's going to come in any minute here. You have the extremes of the orchestra here, the very high and the very low. Yeah. 
music that terrifies every piccolo player that, <laughs> that has to to uh, pick it up and play yeah. it, right? Really was, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Now you have another example. Yeah, I didn't with... know he was going to get two. I thought I'd give you the choice. <laughs> no, I like I, I like the fact that everybody gave multiple examples. So uh, we'll listen to a little bit of Mahler, a composer that I know you. Uh, are crazy about. I am. Have been crazy about for a long time. Was this your first time ever hearing it Mahler? Was. So um, I remember very distinctly a point when my dad was showing me through his LP collection and, and uh, my, my mom and dad had the enormous record collection. And he said, yeah, just listen to anything and you see what you like. And um, and then he, he kind of thought of it for a second. He said, but maybe stay away from those. And, and those were the Mahler... LPs. Uh, that, that was it, the forbidden fruit. It was. That and, set you on the path. Right? And, and I'll be honest, when I didn't think anybody was paying attention, I would put on, you know, the, the middle of the Resurrection Symphony or something, and yeah. it would make no sense to me. But he just said, you might want to be a little older, it's a little more intense. And um, I was 16 years old when the Toledo Symphony performed uh, Mahler's Third, and it was the first time I'd ever heard a note of Mahler. And, um, and I remember I had a magnificent head cold I had snot and, and my eyes were all goopy and I, I just was in like the worst possible place. <laughs> As you're saying that, the, yeah. the other people are like yeah. leaning away yeah. from you. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remember it was one of those situations where I couldn't, um, I couldn't breathe through my nose. Otherwise it would make a terrible sound for everybody around me. So um, I'm having this, this just amazing experience hearing Mahler for the first time. And at the finale, um, in the in, at the end of the finale, I just remember I had to look up at the at the ceiling of the peristyle, which kind of looks like a sky. So I think of this as the sky, and I remember all of the columns were in my peripheral vision, and I had to look up because like I was so overwhelmed by the music, I, I couldn't take in any more musical data. It was so emotional and so overwhelming for me that I had to look up just to kind of not taken anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the tears were down my face as was the snot. And, um, <laughs> everybody gets up and they, they're applauding at the end and I'm just, just wasted. And I am so emotionally spent. Um, but I knew in a, as I walked out, um, 16 years old, that Mahler was going to become a very important composer to me. Yeah. Here's a little bit from the, uh, final movement. This theme in here always reminds me of that song, I'll be seeing you yeah, in all I do the, the same old thing. familiar places, right? Again, these are rather heavy-handed pieces of music for young people to kind of get interested in. But the, right? thing, of, the thing about this movement, this moment, is, is so gloriously simple. Yeah. And this could very much, I could have submitted this movement as well but I, I, I mean, as a second violinist in the McGill Symphony Orchestra, I talk about kind of transporting moments as a performer. And as an orchestra player, I think it's very difficult to have those moments because there's so many people and so many elements that have to align. And this is one of the handful of movements that, that ever happened for me where I just felt Every single person in that room was on the same page. Yeah. Erwin, when did you pick up the violin and start learning that instrument? I was about four and a half, between four and a half and five years old, something around yeah. then. Yeah. Was it your parents that got you into that, or how did that work? 
It was a very unusual um, sort of circumstance because I didn't actually go to a young people's concert. I went to a, a kind of a masterworks concert of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and Cho Liang Lin was playing. Mm. And I don't remember this as much as my parents do, but they remember it because I sat still, possibly for the first time ever. And, um, and I told them that that's I wanted to do that. I wanted, it, I had, I don't think they ever really had a sense that violin was a career, um, but I wanted to play that. And so that's how I started playing. It wasn't actually one of the recordings I, I submitted to you. Um, um, Cho Lang Lin's an excellent player, but I believe he was actually playing the Sibelius Concerto, but I think it was a little bit less of a sense of what the piece was and more a sense of that particular sound. Yeah. Well, here's a violinist that you did send me, and that is uh, Yehudi Menuhin playing Beethoven. What is it about that sound and that performer that grabbed your ear at a young age? You know, I think I didn't quite grasp that this had to be a young age thing. <laughs> this was something that... Um, You're still young. It's okay. <laughs> the concerto itself um, reminds me very much of my um, high school teacher, Ranald Sheen. And I, I've been very, very fortunate with all of my teachers. But I remember um, wanting to play the Beethoven concerto at the age of 14. And this is something um, for listeners who aren't familiar with the concerto. It's a it's one of the pillars of the repertoire and is generally held off to quite late in in somebody's educational development. And I asked um, uh, Mr. Sheen, "Could I? Can I do this concerto?" And he thought about it and said, eh, "Why not? Beethoven's dead. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to complain." <laughs> and and he let me struggle with this concerto for three solid months before we kind of mutually, you know, decided, you know, this is, you know, you've hit a wall here but it was wonderful for me because it showed me how much i needed to learn how 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 much further i needed to go yeah. and i think that was really the first time i fully comprehended what it meant to be a professional musician um but with many i think this many was somebody who at first i didn't appreciate um mm. because he is an exceptional player but was never a perfect player mm. and just I, to me, like growing to appreciate the humanity and the soul that Menuhin brought to playing um, was something that was part of my undergraduate education. I kind of was able to learn that music is not just the notes. It's not just what, what you're executing with the notes. It's what you're telling, what you're communicating, mm -hmm. and the notes just are a vehicle for that. Yeah. So there wasn't really... Um a piece of music that got you interested in music you were already well on your way but it was kind of a watershed moment it was for you very much as so. a young musician i mean mm -hmm. we would have to go back to like what you were listening to at age four i imagine to find well, i think and this is something i didn't have a recording for um but i was going to sleep at night um when i was probably about six or seven there was an an encores album that Itzhak Perlman recorded. Mm -hmm. And there was this... It wasn't Bone Sweet Bone. Was it? <laughs> it was right there. No, um, But there was a piece called Souvenir d'Amérique, or Variations on Yankee Doodle. And it's by oh, yeah. Henri Vuitton. And 
I loved that track. And um, so listening to, you know, Perlman play that um, so many nights as mm-hmm. I was young, falling asleep. That was that that's the one that's the one song on that uh, on that album that sticks in my mind and i remember that being the first solo i actually ever played with the toledo symphony you know so that was that was a cool thing for me Hmm. well i want to bring rachel in here this is one of the pieces that you chose what is this so this is the cat and the mouse by copeland oh my yeah so is that the cat or the mouse (laughs) Uh, who knows but i played this i think it was seventh grade and i am pretty introverted person and i was at a music camp and i played this for the final closing concert and i got a standing ovation Ah. and so and of course there was a boy that i thought was kind of cute the whole you know the two weeks at camp and and he stood up and it was the first time that i um, I realized that I, I I like this. Like I like being a musician and doing something special. It makes me a little bit different. So um, you were the cat and the boy was the mouse. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was also the first time that I was listening to a piece. Well, it's the first time that I remember playing a piece that had a recording of it because I didn't listen. Unlike Merwin and Zach, I didn't listen to classical music growing up. Um and so I, I'm used to playing out of my method books, you know, bone, sweep, bone, yeah. um, stuff like that. And so when I played a piece that actually had a professional recording, I was like, wow, I'm playing real music right now. Um, and so that was cool. And then I thought that it sounded like sound effects for a movie. Oh, and yeah. so for I went through a period of time when I wanted to be a, a sound effects person. <laughs> really? Did you sit at the piano and kind of like pluck, do a little plucking of the strings and making weird noises and oh, things. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So Halloween was one of your favorite times of yes. the year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you envious of Brad's soundboard? <laughs> I I did have a little bit of jealousy when the first uh, episode that you brought that in. <laughs> I keep forgetting I have the soundboard. <laughs> so wonderful when you forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I think somebody... Uh, hang on. You're going to disrupt one of Rachel's seminal memories with... No, no, no. We'll, we'll keep going here. Um, what I no. love about what, what just happened here is that uh, as soon as Brad played this, your face just lit up, Rachel. Yeah. And you could just see that, that a great memory was sparked or a great happiness was... Here's was the one that Rachel likes, I think. Oh, well, it would help if I turned it on. Let's try again. We go. <laughs> Let me try that again. Here's the one. Here's the one that Rachel likes. Ready? Yes. Was that good? That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I bet you could play that on the piano if you tried. We could find a way. Yeah. Find a way to do it. <laughs> or we just have a little Copeland arrangement. Anyway, as we were saying, as you were saying. Um. Yeah. So that was. The the first time that I thought I I like this. I could foresee doing this and something that not everybody can do. Um and that 
really spoke to me and kind of gave me an outlet actually for my emotions. <laughs> now we're getting really deep. Sorry. Um, okay. But I, I always use music as kind of an escape. And, yeah. and being the youngest of only three children, I don't know how Zach did it with like 30 children in his family, but <laughs> anything that would kind of that I could do different than my sisters. And so mm. that was definitely piano was something. Um, so as three girls, you're like the Cindy Brady of the group. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that was always, that was nice. It was something that made me different. And then just seeing the, when the people stood up, I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. So it gave you a sense of empowerment. Yeah. I think a lot of young performers have that experience, don't you think? And and so Rachel, now you are a director of education at Toledo Symphony. Um, tell us about what you do in your capacity in, in that role. Trying to bring education to all members of the community. Mm -hmm. So from the littlest all the way up to through adults. Um, we have the Toledo Symphony School of Music, which has music and movement classes for toddlers. We have Suzuki lessons for various instruments. We have the Toledo Youth Orchestras. We have um, adult classes that we have started recently as well. Um, but then we also have young people's concerts mm -hmm. that bring in students that may not have the parents that, that want to attend symphony concerts, but this gives them an opportunity to see the orchestra. So it's exposing, um, just talking about the students for a while, exposing the, the children to opportunities that I didn't have growing up, just the how my family raised us. Um, and so trying to give them the opportunities and the experience. Now, you say you didn't have these opportunities when you were growing up, but were you exposed in school to any of this? Uh, we were, my sisters and I were all required to take piano lessons when we were six years old. And from, you know, the little, the church lady down the street. Mm -hmm. And so being the youngest, when my middle sister started, she was six, I was three, I just begged for piano lessons. Yeah. And so I started shortly thereafter. As far as the school music program, you know, we had the general music classes, but nothing too big. Um it was the bell choir of church and, you know, right. little Sunday school songs and stuff like that. In the just a few minutes that we have left, I want to talk about what we can do to address that deficiency in music education, mm -hmm. right? I know Toledo Symphony is doing a lot with the Toledo Symphony School, but above and beyond that, how do we reach kids? Because, you know, there's a whole litany of benefits that education brings to the child, music education brings to the child. We don't necessarily have to go through all of those, but and some of them are just, you know, uh, common sense, that it helps you learn how to, to work together, that it helps you think in a certain way. It exercises your brain. It helps you develop self-confidence, you know, especially for people who aren't necessarily into sports or some other activity where you normally build your self-confidence as a young person. So it's, it, it is part of the symphony's mission. You know, it, our, our, we have a couple of different mission statements, but the one that I always go back to talks about having professional musicians, but also educators who create excellent um, quality performances and music education opportunities for all. Um, so I think the orchestra is, has identified somewhere along the way that maybe if the schools weren't going to do this, that we would have to do this ourselves. And these are obviously decisions that were made before I came on board, but I'm really happy when I walk through the the symphony offices around four o'clock and school children are starting to come in for their lessons. And the place takes on a very different character, whereas a lot of the hallway are a little quiet during the day because everyone's typing at their computers. Now you start to hear strains of violins and pianos. Um, 
teachers starting to talk through uh, lessons with their students. And um, it really puts a foundation for us that this is, this is what we're doing this for. We have a future of musicians that we're only beginning to meet now and, and we can inspire them to think differently. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? I think one of the challenges when we're trying to assert the relevance of music education is that one of the greatest things about teaching music is that it's something that you have to work for an extended period of time for to really get the gratification. Um, it's an immensely great life skill. But unfortunately, I think when one has to account for music educational programs, the people who are demanding that accountability want instant accountability. They want this sense of, well, how how many people showed up this year versus how many people showed up last year? Is there an increase? Is that good? Or it, it isn't this, what, what we're trying to teach is something that requires a perseverance. And in a way, that's something that that we need to be able to communicate better mm-hmm. to grant writers, to um, uh, to people who are who are supporting educational programs because these are not instant gratification sorts of programs. These are programs that help develop people's ability to persevere. And we need to, as an organization, persevere in making those statements. Yeah. You have to sell it too. Absolutely. And it is, it's a long game. Um, I had my first um, piano students. I started when they were three years old, just graduated from high school and they were playing piano that entire time. And I just admire the parents for sticking with it and just knowing that that's the right thing to do. But I think as far as, um, I I honestly think some parents don't know where to go. I think that some of them think, oh, classical music, that's just kind of stuffy. And so shows like this that helps help people realize that classical music can be fun and um, help them realize that it's not, it's for anybody, especially our symphony. It's 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 affordable to go visit and we have some great concerts, but I want to go back to what you said about how you heard, um, you realize that the music that you were listening to in the mainstream media, like on the the Rice Krispie commercials and right. stuff, yeah. um, that was taken from real works. And I think that that's kind of a nice, um, a nice thread to get from point A to point B to yeah. help people realize you're listening to classical music all over the place. Right, right. It's not the the, the dreaded boogeyman that many people think of mm-hmm. uh, when they hear that word classical music, those words. Um, before we wrap it up, Rachel, if somebody is interested or they want to get their kids involved in music, what's a good way to, to contact you or to contact the symphony? Um, I would say go to our website, www.toledosymphony.com, or else uh, give me a call. So my number <laughs> is 419-418-0022. I'm Everybody happy to write t- that down. 419, <laughs> say it again. 418-0022. Okay. Great. That's about all the time that we have. I mean, you know, we barely made a dent in this whole issue of education, but I thought it would be at least a good start to bring up and talk about our own personal experiences and how they relate to what we're doing now and what the symphony is doing now, which is quite a lot for our community. So Mm -hmm. it's a wonderful resource. I hope that people will take advantage of it. My thanks to everybody for joining me today, to Zach, to Merwin, and also to Rachel Zeithamel, Director of Education for Toledo Symphony. Toledo Symphony Lab is generously underwritten by a gift from the estate of Barbara Garwood and is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of this program as a podcast by going to our website, that is at WGTE.org. 
And don't forget, we want to hear from you. Our question and answer line is open. Leave your comments or your questions at 419-418-0012. And uh, we may use your voice in a future episode. And remember, you can always check out all the events at the Symphony by visiting their website at ToledoSymphony.com and through their various social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab here on Public Radio FM 91.